Hi, friends. Welcome back to Magnolia Radio. We're back after a long, long overdue unplanned hiatus. I apologize for the extended absence I had to take. Uh, I was finishing up my new album, Prodigal, as well as being the subject of a new documentary about the making of the album. And truth be told, I just couldn't keep up with the podcast with everything going on in my life. I've had some health issues in the past year, and I won't go into too much detail about all that here. But y'all can read about it over on my Substack, magnoliastate.substack.com, which is also where all things Magnolia Radio lives. So head over there and give us a read and listen and hit subscribe. I'm on Instagram and Twitter too, or X, I guess they call it now, at Magnolia Radio. And of course, right here in your ears on the podcast, on most podcasting apps. Okay, that's done. Today, I'm happy to release a talk I have with my good friend William Boyle, or Bill, as his friends like me call him. Uh, He's an author who lives here in Oxford, but he was born and raised in New York. Um, I think he moved down here to Mississippi for school, and he's never left. And uh, he has some great books out titled Gravesend, Shoot the Moonlight Out, A Friend is a Gift to Give Yourself, which is my favorite and one that we'll talk about a lot, as well as The Lonely Witness, City of Margins, and Death Don't Have No Mercy. I recorded this talk about a year ago, so some things might be a little out of date, but all told, I think everything is pretty much accurate. So, without further ado, here's me talking with my good friend Bill Boyle. What have you been up to? Not too much, man. You, you know, the, the usual usual stuff. Writing, working. Now, are you just writing now or are you teaching too? No, I still teach. I, uh, I teach a couple of days a week. Okay. Um, teaching like four classes. So yeah. I, uh, yeah, yeah, I teach um, mostly first year writing and um, I've been teaching this cinema studies class, but I'm an adjunct, oh, cool. so I, I kind of you know I don't have to do any of the meetings and things like that. I'm yeah, in, I'm in and I'm out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You know, I got my classes and office hours, and then I'm I'm gone. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, yeah. Do you know uh, John Rash? Have you met him? He works in the. Uh, I guess he's in technically in the Southern Studies department. But he's a filmmaker. He's doing that Southern Punk Archive thing. Oh now. yeah, okay, yeah. I saw I saw something about that, but I don't know him. I think he teaches a couple of okay. film classes nice. as well. Um, he's my neighbor. He lives right over here. Oh nice. So I nice. just yeah. just met him. Recently. I've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. I just they, I mean I teach a film class, but I teach a, a film class for the English department. Mm-hmm. So it's not there is a kind of little burgeoning kind of film department or something yeah. here but the, the film class i teach is like intro to cinema studies so it's through the english department okay um so and that's that's been a, a recent a recent thing do you get into like screenwriting and stuff like that or actually they smaller? got me teaching a screenwriting workshop next cool next semester um which i've never done before. i mean i've done screenwriting stuff but i've never taught a class. I'm kind of like a utility player over yeah. there. Like if they need something or someone quits or retires, like <laughs> I, I get a class here and a class yeah. there, which, you know, is fine. I kind of had, you know, I, I kind of over the last few years have, have thought about it as mostly the way I get insurance. And I do like yeah, teaching, right. but, you know, I've mostly kept doing it for that reason. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 
on, on good days, I really do love it. And I think this is, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing for a long time. And on other days, I just am like, I don't, I don't want to teach anymore. I want to just, just write. And, yeah. Um, but I've been mostly, I mean, you know, I consider myself kind of a full-time writer and part-time teacher. Pretty yeah. Much. Well, I mean, you've been putting out a lot of work in the last, Yeah. I was looking it up the other day cause me and Sarah were talking about it. Um, and I like looked. I think I looked at your Wikipedia or something. And I was like, "Shit, he's put out a book every year for like the last five years." Yeah, something. pretty much. I think this year yeah. will be the first year that I don't have a book out. And yeah. since I since I really started kind of publishing regularly in 2018, um, and yeah, I mean, there's been there's been seven now. I think yeah, since 2013, um, and. Uh, yeah, so I've been, I've just been, you know, that's, that's always been kind of my, my way of, I think people can get hung up on, you know, the thing that they just finished and putting it out in the world. And I just kind of keep my head down and begin work on the next yeah, thing yeah. as much as I can. Um, I think a book a year for like seven years is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. more than a lot of people do. You know, so. I, when you hang out with Ace, Ace Atkins, who yeah. you know who's, who lives around here, he's one of my best friends, and I feel lazy next to him. And he puts out two. <laughs> you know, he's been putting out two really? a year for wow, yeah. for however long ten years, eight years now. Yeah. Um, so when you have somebody like that as your kind of model it can be yeah it can be a good just i mean lights a fire under you to just keep, keep right. doing the work and um i mean i think also i've always admired that you know as, as in terms of the the art i respond to a lot of crime fiction writers i mm-hmm. love were always you know the old pulp writers were putting out a bookie i mean the bookie year would have been low for them they would yeah. some of those guys were putting out three or four <laughs> books a year. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I just, I've always liked that way of, of, uh, of working. You know, yeah. I like filmmakers who put out right. a film a year. I like, you know, bands that, that are always putting out records, you know, yeah. so, um, it's just something I've always responded to. Yeah. Well, I always try to keep at it myself. I mean, I've had these definitely had these points where, um, it's been like a year or more since I put yeah. anything out, but the last couple of years, you know, I put out a record in 2020 and then 2021. I thought I was going to have one ready for this year, yeah. but I just decided to spend a little more time on it Yeah, for me. Yeah, like I had it yeah. written in time yeah, yeah. to put out, but, yeah. um, that's what happened to me with yeah. this new, new thing I've been working on too. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just, yeah. I mean, I'll just, uh. I don't think you have to put put something out every year if it's not. But it's more about like a work ethic. Yeah, it is. It is just like keeping at it. Totally, you know. I I think it can. You know, if you fall out of that rhythm, it can sometimes throw you off course. That's true. Or or just get in your head. I think for a lot of people, especially like you know artists who get hung up on like a sophomore release or something. You know, they that's all like becomes a psychological. thing that's uh, true man i never even heard of that yeah the sophomore slump yeah thing until water liars was in the studio for wyoming which was our <laughs> sophomore record yeah uh, someone told me and i was like oh, shit what did you tell me that for you know like i never even heard of that <laughs> yeah yeah uh i've always thought of sophomore records as being kind of good yeah yeah I, I don't know what where that even came from i mean maybe yeah i don't know maybe it, it it's definitely uh 
with filmmakers and and um, writers too. I mean, if somebody's got a big hit, I think it's more for like people who have. It's the thing that comes after the big hit. Yeah, it's like yeah. if you have a big hit, if you just released, uh, you know. Reservoir Dogs or, you know, 10 or whatever, yeah. you know, and how are you going to follow that up? That's it's true. Obviously, it doesn't apply to somebody who, you know, like for me, I, I published my first book with a small indie. Nobody gave a shit. I didn't, you know, yeah. I didn't have to worry about a sophomore slump because I wasn't following right. up a massive success or anything. But, um, but well, you've had some success since then, I think, like it seems like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's gone pretty. So pretty have you well. felt that? At all after some of the, you know. Yeah, I felt yeah. it. I mean, I definitely, you know, um, when Gravesend was my first book, when it came out in France in 2016, and kind of the 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 career I've had in France mm-hmm. um, has made me feel that, you yeah. know, um, more than I've ever felt it here, really. <laughs> but now I'm kind of curious. I've followed you. Uh, you know, I follow you on Instagram, and I know you yeah. and stuff. So I've seen you... Um, taking trips to France to do, you know, I guess readings and promote the books and stuff like that. How, how did that come about? Like what, what's that story? Cause to me it seems so, uh, I don't know if I guess foreign is the right word for like this French speaking culture to kind of identify with such a like New York type of noir story. Is it just big there? Or well, you it? know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of things. Number one, it's just a, insanely great literary culture yeah there so i mean they're they're you know there are independent bookstores everywhere i mean you can Mm -hmm. go to a small town there and there'll be a couple of independent bookstores it's just a great literary culture they support the arts they yeah they throw money at the arts they bring writers and other artists to festivals there are friends i'm writing this yeah there are always (laughs) there are always festivals and then you know um the they've always loved um american fiction american crime fiction in particular they've been all there i mean there's a great tradition going back you know to to Edgar Allan Poe of them, yeah. of them responding to American writers before they were ever, you know, even really taken seriously here. Um, so that was true of Poe, it was true of Faulkner, it was true of a lot of American crime writers in the in the kind of golden age. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of writers like Jim Thompson and David Goodis and Charles Williford, who were big big heroes of mine. Had you know they were they were neglected here totally and they were revered kind of in France. Um, yeah. So that was you know that was always something that was kind of I was aware of because I grew up reading that stuff and and hearing those stories and then you know kind of happened unexpectedly because as I said Gravesend came out with a really small press here and then um, I did a, an interview with a friend of mine. Uh, in the LA Review of Books, um, just my friend Anya, who was good enough to, you know, ask me if I wanted to do this interview, and I said yes, and I did it. And this French translator uh, read it and and tracked down my book and read it and wanted to bring it over there. So that was the beginning, and then it got chosen for um, this uh, this publisher, Ravage Noir. The publisher's name was Francois Guarif. He had been publishing all of these writers, Elmore Leonard and Jim Thompson and all these writers that some of the writers I just mentioned, David Goodis, and they were doing their thousandth release in this this series. Yeah. And he chose my book kind of as uh, 
this like symbolic thing to go back to the roots of what he'd wanted to do, which to, was to, you know, publish neglected or, or unknown American crime writers. And, um, you know, it was either he was going to publish either my book or James Elroy's new book at the time as the thousandth release. And it would, two opposite things, you know, Elroy, yeah. who who's famous, who everybody knows, who's got a huge name or me, this unknown writer. So he published mine and that was kind of the beginning of it. And then I, I followed him to another publisher and um, have had this this great, great you know, time going there and I'm, I'm there, you, you know, COVID threw it off, but it's been, you know, sometimes it's been twice a year. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's been once a year. There's been a year here or there where I haven't gone, but I've gone over about seven or eight times, I think since 2016. Yeah. And it's, you know, they, they're amazing because they will bring me for festivals and then they'll build bookstore tours around that. And they never, there's so many bookstores that, that I've n hardly ever been to the same bookstore. I don't think yeah. I've ever been to the bookstore <laughs> twice. You're just always uh, going to different places, different towns. You know, they don't do much in Paris. They send you all over the country. My publisher anyway, they send yeah. me all over the country to little towns and yeah. little cities. And it's, it's been great. That's the good stuff right there too. Yeah. Like just kind of getting out of you're not just like in Paris the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been you know that really has been. I mean, because it's, it's like it's like Oxford. When I moved to Oxford from New York, I was amazed. You know, going to readings at Square Books because readings weren't like that in New York City. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, they were intimate. They were you know it was kind of like the centerpiece of what was going on in town that night and. Um, it's it's like that in some of those small towns, you know. Yeah. It's it's a very similar feeling. Like you know, people people come out. So in New York, it's different. I mean, I never felt what I've felt here. Yeah. Uh, you know, going to not when I'm maybe there are bookstores now that uh, I'm talking about when I was growing up and going to readings and stuff that you know just was. You know, they were often very crowded, and I mean, you're not gonna. I guess what I'm saying is, you're not gonna wind up at the bar next door with yeah, the writer, yeah. you know, whereas here, like right. that's going to happen if you want it, you know, if you, if everyone you showed to. up to the reading and it's like, you all say goodbye <laughs> yeah. and then you walk out and then you go to a bar to have a drink and everyone's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like two doors down. Yeah. That's yeah. never happened. I mean, it, you yeah. know, well now if I go to a reading in New York, it's usually people I know or something. So it's different, yeah. but I'm talking about when I was, you know, college kid kind of going yeah. to stuff like that and, and just uh, feeling like, you know, detached and removed a little bit. Well, this does perfect segue into kind of what I wanted to ask you about one thing, which is, so you grew up in New York yeah, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Or, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. And, uh, how did you end up in Mississippi? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll try to say it. I'll try to give you the short, shorter version of it. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, so I grew up in Southern Brooklyn and, uh, in, kind of over by Coney Island, Gravesend, Bensonhurst yeah. area. Um, went to college in upstate New York, um, in a town called New Paltz, uh, SUNY school. Mm -hmm. And then I met my wife, you know, when we were, we had just both finished college and, and we've like moved, we moved to Austin, um, Texas for a year. Okay. Just kind of on a whim. We'd only been dating for a few months and we followed some friends down there and, uh, when I was in Austin, I, we used to go to the movies all the time and, um, went to see 
a movie that had just come out called Big Bad Love that I didn't know mm. anything about except uh, that Tom played Bo- in Austin. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. played at the you know it was like the Dobie wherever we used to go to the movies. Yeah, um, didn't know anything about it except that Tom Waits was on the soundtrack, which was enough for me. Uh-huh. And uh, so I went and I liked the movie um, and went immediately to the bookstore after and got the the book Larry Brown's Big Bad Love. Yeah, and Larry Brown pretty quickly became my my favorite writer and yeah um we moved back to new york after a year in austin and i start you know i was reading reading all of larry brown and oxford just got to be a place that i wanted to get to of course i also knew in college i got really into rl burnside and Uh junior kimbrough and you know so I, i knew all the fat possum stuff and um, about what year was years were these so, early 2000s early 2000s yeah and then uh, we moved back up we were back in upstate New York and then we were in the Bronx for a while and and then uh, we came down here in 2008 okay so um, and you've been here ever since yeah, in 2008. yeah, yeah. since 2008 I mean I got my MFA here um you know i use that that was kind of my way of getting down here um you know by that time you know larry brown was was gone already but um you know i'd I'd read in the in the intervening years i'd read barry hannah and Mm -hmm. wanted to study with him and i'd read um tom franklin and and um you know so there was a lot of a lot of stuff that kind of drew me down here yeah. Um, now I was just talking to Tyler the other day and apparently he took um yeah, some fiction writing classes under Barry. Uh did you as well? I did, yeah. Yeah. I took one one class with Barry and it was I guess it was um I think it was the semester before he before he died. Okay. Um and it was great. It was yeah. a great class. Um <laughs> I remember I well I was in school there about the same time yeah. actually. I was uh, so my story is like I graduated high school in 98 and went to a local community college for a couple of years. I kind of didn't, really didn't know what I wanted to right, do. Right. I was like majoring in music and um, quickly realized like this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of dropped out and worked with my dad at his sawmill for a while. And that was a pretty big motivator to go back. And, you yeah. know, and so then. I was like, well, I'll just study history. I like I liked my history classes yeah. when I had been there. History and English. You know, I was still kind of history and English. I was like just getting into to reading a lot. And then so, but I was also like really getting into writing songs and playing in bands about yeah. the same time. So I kind of did a couple years at this community college, just sort of taking, you know, basic classes. And then my 20s really got going I uh, just basically just started playing in bands and all I did was like work construction and and played shows with my band yeah. and then started doing solo stuff um, but then after me and my first wife Natalie got married um, we had been I guess we got married in 2005 uh, anyway so I guess after my first son was born I was basically like oh, i should just go back to school it's something i, I kind of always wanted to do yeah, yeah so i was like in my late 20s and i just decided to finish up my bachelor's yeah so i was just and i was studying english and history 
here I think in I about met, 2007 and 8. Yeah. I think I met you then. Probably. Because I think the, I, I want I can't remember when the first time we met was, but we were, we were almost certainly at that Magnolia Electric Company show in Memphis at the yeah. same time. Yeah. But I definitely absolutely. remember seeing you there. Yeah. In the Josephine tour. Yeah. I can't remember if that was the first time we met or we'd met before that. And, and I knew Gary Short. Right. And, you know, I, um, I remember kind of, I can't remember if Gary talked about you or I knew we were having some Frank Stanford conversation. And yeah, so I was taking Gary Short's yeah. poetry class then. And it was basically like a lower level poetry class, but he taught it like a poetry uh, yeah. writing yeah, seminar, yeah. like a graduate level class. He yeah. just like didn't do the undergrad thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> we're not, we're not doing that. He didn't have any tests, you know, yeah. it was just like a signed readings and we talked about it and wrote I poems. Love Gary. And wrote poems every yeah. day. But he was telling me that I remember at the end of one semester, he was like, well, I've got to go help Barry put in his grades because he doesn't <laughs> keep grades. <laughs> so it's basically like, apparently Barry would just like scribble things down and put everything in a pile and he didn't really keep grades up. Yeah. But Gary was, he was like, I don't do grades either, Yeah. but they've tasked me with trying to make up grades <laughs> for this a guy that I've never even been in his class. So, That's funny. Uh, does a I, Gary was like a real? I learned a lot. Yeah, I love. I love. I took a class with Gary too. Yeah. He's he was the best. Yeah, but it's kind of yeah. It's kind of interesting that we were kind of kicking around. Yeah. If you ever saw like a kind of a country dude driving like a a, a '70s long wheelbase <laughs> beat up red Ford F one fifty. Well, I remember that was like barely making on campus. That was me. I remember. See, I can't remember what year this was either. It all. It's all gets blurry now but yeah. i remember seeing you play i think the first time i saw you play was when you opened for david bazan oh yeah that's right at proud larry's yeah this is the only time he's ever played yeah. well he's played here since then but that was the first time he'd ever played yeah he did yeah. that was a i was i was really into him in that moment like in that i still like david bazan a lot but yeah. i had that like in the wake of molina dying right like I kind of filled that in with with uh, those Bazan solo, early Bazan solo records, mm -hmm. um, and so he played here right around. It was right around then, I think. And yeah, it was that's great. Right. And you opened, and then he did that weird like I don't know if you remember this or you were there for this. He did a a a conversation the next day with the I, Ole Miss Secular I remember Society. That, but I didn't go to that. <laughs> did you go? I did go. How was it? it was, I mean, I don't think this that society. I'd never heard of it. You know, never listened to his that, music. Or it was a conversation about. It was like him talking to, basically, like all these kids who probably grew up in like evangelical church yeah. who had like fallen out of it. Yeah. It was kind of like a like a recovery meeting. That's his scene, man. Yeah. He does. I've seen him do that at shows before. Yeah, you know, especially at that point, he would just kind of stop his show and do the ask questions thing. Yeah. Um, I remember a few of my friends would, it got to the point it happened so much of the shows, they were like, I wish you would just play his songs. Like, we didn't come here to be in like evangelical AA or whatever, you know? But, it was pretty, but I, was I always mean, thought I was, it was great. I was I pretty blown away stuff. by it, you know, yeah. at the time. It was, uh, it was really interesting. It was right yeah. after, I don't remember what year it was. It was right after my son was born, so it had to be after, it was, must have been 2011. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just I, I love that I, I love that that record and it was a, it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I did two nights opening. We did, did the show here, 
and then opened for him in Memphis at the yeah. High Tone there, at the old High Tone. Nice. Yeah. But yeah. Which is where I also, that was that, where the Magnolia Electric Company show was, which is the last time yeah. I saw Molina. Yeah. I, you know, I actually wasn't at that show. You weren't? Because I, I we. I could have sworn you were. Maybe it was another show I was thinking about. I think that it was I saw another one. I mean, a different different band. Yeah, I think it was. Because um, I was there a lot, but I specifically remember I'm, we missed all of that tour because I was on tour with uh, Justin's old band, Theodore, okay, Theodore from St. Yeah. Louis. And yeah. we had done like a six-week tour right in the middle of the summer. Yeah. And we bought that record. It came out while we were on right. tour, and we bought it. And we were like, oh, man, this is so good. And we yeah. listened to it all the time. And they had just seen them in St. Louis before we left. And they were like, man, it was the best. And I just, anyways, on that tour, we were, yeah. Minor Electric Company and us were like kind of zigzagging yeah, yeah. the country and we just never crossed paths. Maybe it was uh, Damien Gerardo. Yeah, definitely. That might have, that I, might have been who it was. I saw, before, we had, before we had kids, we used to go up to Memphis for shows all the time um, at the High Tone. Right, yeah. I mean, High Tone is like, the old location was like, that was, they got all of the good shows yeah. that I wanted to go to. Yeah, me too. I mean, um, I got yeah. once, you know, I got tired of, you know, they were kind of a late start place and I got tired of driving back at like two o'clock in the morning or whatever. Yeah. But when we first moved up here and I had more energy um, yeah. or moved down here, I should say, um, we used to go up there all the time for Magnolia Electric Company, Gerardo. I can't remember who else we saw there, but we saw some good shows there. Yeah. The only time I ever played, I mean, I opened for Magnolia Electric Company there. That would have been several years earlier. Yeah. Um, probably about five years before that um that was the only time i actually ever saw oh really melina wow i saw them perform i saw them about seven or eight times but it was enough like that one time it was just like one of those shows that i'll never forget um i never saw them where it wasn't great yeah i mean i've heard some some stuff about some of that later tour stuff being rough but I never saw them, or it wasn't great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To the point where I couldn't. I mean, one of the stories came out about him, you know, being into, you know, heavily into drinking and stuff. Like I'd never, I'd seen him so many times, and I'd never even seen him. Yeah, like that. I mean, I'd never. Right. I mean, I think you know, people said it, he didn't drink while he was playing. He drank after or whatever. But yeah, I couldn't believe it because I was like, this guy was so disciplined, so so together. I couldn't imagine right. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just played on that. That's kind of weird. I just played on that stage, um, a couple weeks ago. Oh, nice. So I did that show in Tupelo yeah, yeah. and I went up that, that place is called Growlers now. Okay. If you ever see any shows going on at Growlers. Yeah. Yeah. It's that exact room. The old high tone used to be Okay. It's the wow. same stage. Oh, that's cool. It looks the same, you know, a little different, but it looks basically the same. Yeah. Um, it was cool. Yeah. I played hammer down oh, like nice. kind of in, yeah just in memoriam while i was there uh, that's yeah. great it was anyways well i have been um going back to one of your my favorite books probably my favorite book of yours <laughs> Thanks, which is a friend is a gift you give yourself this came out when uh time is time's gotten so weird in the <laughs> last few weird. years i think it came out in 2019 2019 yeah it's big before COVID. that's right so 2019 it would have to have been because i had bought this i think then right when it came out because i usually yeah. would just go down to the bookstore and buy your book whenever it came out oh, get the signed copy and all that um 
but I remember I hadn't read this one yet in 2020. So like I still hadn't yeah, got yeah. to it yet. And, but my wife, Sarah, uh, she was traveling to Malaysia to visit with her family. And she was like, just wanting a good book to take with her. And she's like, I'm going to take Bill's book. And I was like, all right, go ahead. Don't lose it. You know? <laughs> uh, and I remember she, I was talking to her one night and she was just like, this book is great. Like you, like, I can't believe you slept on this one. And she loaned it to her dad who was there. He was like in his eighties at the time and oh, they grew up, she grew up with like him reading to her every night. Yeah, and yeah. They were always been huge readers and just talking about books all, you know, all the time. And she gave it to him and he, I think started it there and like read it on the plane and came back and finished it in DC. And then he was just like, man, that was fun. He was like, that's the most <laughs> fun book. You know, they just thought it was hysterical, oh, man, but just awesome. like loved the story. Uh, that's great. To and, hear. and they have pretty high standards when it comes <laughs> to stuff like that. Um, but I was like, man, well, shit, you know, like <laughs> I, now I got to read it. But anyways, it was just it has this moment. The important part of it is it has this moment stuck because uh, Sarah's dad passed probably only about six months after that. Oh, man. And that was his last trip going back to Malaysia to see uh her mom's side of the family. It was sort of his last yeah, trip. Yeah. And so having this like road trip kind of book, he just like really loved oh, man, that. That's, that's so and nice to hear. I'm sorry. I think one you. of, you know, it's one of the last books that he read because it got to the point where he couldn't really read yeah, it anymore yeah. uh, later on in the year. It was kind of a hard year. I mean, 2020 was a hard year for everybody. Right. Yeah. It's particularly hard. Uh, cause Sarah lost her dad. She man. was really close to that year. Oh, sorry so this book kind of, what it's like a good memory that sits in that. Oh, that means so much to me. And I so I'm know. trying to like do it my due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> and like after time of yeah. like going through it. Cause I had like read it afterwards and I was like, well, I need to like sit down with it. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Well, thanks man. That's, that's um, so nice to hear. But to me, this book too, I don't know. I think it's sort of the quintessential book of like what you do. Thanks. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, it's probably a little bit different from some of the other stuff that I do, but, um, maybe not in what you do, but like, I, I just recognize you in this book. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, it's definitely the book where I kind of, I think leaned into kind of the more clearly anyway, um, the, the humor, mm -hmm. um, which I kind of think of all my books in, in some ways, dark comedies, but yeah. I don't think it's all, <laughs> I don't think it's always apparent to everybody. doesn't always land. Yeah. <laughs> and this one, it landed, you know, and this yeah. one people got what I was going for in terms of, you know, having this kind of screwball kind of <laughs> comic noir yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it definitely felt like, you know, something I'd been, building towards that yeah. I mean, at the time I don't know if I knew exactly that I was building towards that and it was also you know it was very much an homage to a lot of stuff that I really really love and and responded to you know um particularly the Jonathan Demi movies um uh -huh. Married to the Mob and, and right. Something Wild so it, was it seems like there's a lot of references type things in here yeah. that maybe I don't get completely, but that's why I think of it as being so uh, much. It reminds me so much of you because yeah. you, you're so into film yeah. and you write about film. Uh, 
I must confess, I actually, when I need to know a good movie to watch, I just kind of go look at your Twitter yeah, or, you know, your Facebook or Instagram. Actually, me and Sarah both, they were like, well, what's Bill been watching? And we're like, <laughs> okay, yeah, we've always wanted to watch that. We'll watch that nice. now. But great. I don't even get it all. I don't think. I think it's even yeah. better than I know. You know, it's oh, such yeah, a specific yeah. world um, that I'm just like trying to yeah. my best to hang on to but even better than that it's just a really it is it's just a really good story it's really funny Thanks. um some things i mean i think the one thing about it and, and this goes through all your books it's just like very new york yeah. so one thing i want to ask you is i mean you're obviously from there so it's kind of in your blood yeah um but do you find that like living in mississippi has like changed the way you think of it, has it heightened it or is it, do you have to like dig down and kind of refine it? Is it easier? Or is it harder? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's just impossible at this point. It's impossible for me to know, you know, what it would have been like if I hadn't left, if I hadn't moved here and, yeah. um, and you know, I've spent my whole career basically writing about, about New York, um, yeah. from, you know, and, and everything I've published has been since I've lived here, um, writing about New York. So it's, um, it's just, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to imagine how it would have been if I hadn't left or if I would have been able to write about it in the same way, if I hadn't left, all I know is that I did leave and that, you know, there's some kind of alchemy involved that I think made me probably write about it in a way that I wouldn't have if I stayed. Um, I think, you know, when I write about New York, I, I write about it as, you know, very much like a New York of my imagination. Um, you know, I think it's not, it's not, there are elements of realism for sure, but mm -hmm. I, there's also layers of mythology and yeah. imagination and, and, you know, other stuff kind of built over that. So, um, the, I think the, the kind of New York universe I've built that I write about is, is, you know, again, very much like a, a, a Brooklyn of the, or, or New York of the imagination and New York of the soul kind of, um, so, okay. yeah, I mean, I, you know, and, and like I said, it, you know, a lot of it is rooted in people I really knew places I really knew, but I also build this other stuff over well, it. It seems really rooted in place, you know, yeah. just the way you'll kind of rattle off uh, street corners. Yeah. For example, to me, it reminds me of when, when I'm reading like Larry Brown, for example, yeah. and he mentions like a couple roads that cross yeah, somewhere, yeah. like I know those roads. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just it kind of Yeah. Well, a New I mean, Yorker has to read that and be like, oh, yeah, you know, it does something. I, and I've always I mean that's stuff I've always responded to as a reader. Yeah. And you know, what I wanted to do as a writer. And Larry Brown was a huge I mean, you know, beginning especially um when I was starting out trying to write a novel, you know, Larry Brown was a huge influence on me and you know, I wanted, I mean, my kind of first mission, I think, that I set myself as as a novelist was to write about Brooklyn and the way Larry Brown had written about Oxford and, you know, the surrounding area. I, I hadn't really seen that or I hadn't seen that in much contemporary fiction at the time. You know, I think that when people were writing about Brooklyn, it was this Brooklyn I didn't know, downtown, brownstones, kind of, yeah, you know, different, different place than the place I grew up and I hadn't seen 
my neighborhood really represented in a way that you know i guess it's not like a romantic story so people are not telling that maybe yeah Yeah. i don't know i mean but i knew that i wanted to just uh, yeah i like i like you know and i sit down to write there's almost nothing i like more than just kind of putting a character on a block in my neighborhood and just seeing what happens you know seeing where they go well one thing i try to stay conscious of um I think it's kind of hard as a writer and as a songwriter to, to not like think about place. Yeah. You know, like where you come from, the things that you kind of respond to emotionally. Yeah. You know, uh, but sometimes I don't know, writing about place can just kind of like get into this nostalgia. Yeah. Or yeah. And especially because a place to me always goes with a time also. Yeah. Place changes over time. Yeah. And you have that. Um, but what I love about your writing is it's it doesn't seem like nostalgia. Yeah. It just seems like. How did I, I wrote this down earlier. Um, it's more about like giving a voice. Yeah. Uh, and, and like setting a scene. Yeah. You know, which I think is like the great way to do it. But do you, do you think you're, do you approach your writing in, in that way just for the characters or is it kind of part, partly for you too? Um, yeah. I mean, actually this book was the beginning of me figuring out like, that I ha- I was writing about New York kind of as I remembered it mm-hmm. more than, you know, as it is now as my first two books were set in, in Brooklyn in the, in the 2010s. And, you know, and of course I'm there all the time and visiting my mom all the time, my family yeah. all the time, but actually friend is a gift is set in 2006, which is yeah. the last time I lived there. I mean, or, or, or you know, the last couple of years I lived there, I left there in 2008. So, um, yeah, Derek Jeter was still playing baseball. Yeah. It was the yeah. year, it was the year actually, it was the year we moved to the Bronx where some of the book is set the Throgs neck neighborhood of the Bronx. Yeah. So I kind of realized, um, you know, that I had to write about it from that point back. So all my books since then have been everything I've written since then has been the nineties or the early two thousands or this mm-hmm. new thing I'm working on is the eighties. Like, so I, I'm, I'm sticking around the time period that I, that I know. And the, that when I think about it in my head, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't, it's very rarely, I mean, I, I will probably admit to having some nostalgia for the nineties as a decade. Yeah. Um, just in terms of, you know, music and other stuff but in films and books. that's your formative years yeah. that's your teenage years too. yeah those are yeah. my formative i mean i was you know i was 12 you know in 1990 and yeah. you know 22 you yeah. know and, and right in 2000 so really super formative years and and in a lot of ways i mean i don't know if i i don't think about it as nostalgia but it was very much like you know the last of a certain way of, 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 you know, finding stuff. I mean, you know, record stores and, and yeah. video stores where, you know, you weren't reading about stuff on, you were just kind of yeah. discovering stuff, um, in a different way for me anyway, you know, I didn't have anybody handing me stuff. So it's just kind of like wandering into a video store, wandering into a record store and taking chances on stuff. Yeah. Um, so I've, I definitely have some nostalgia for, for that and for those early days of kind of seeing stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, beyond that, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't write about New York with any 
sense of nostalgia i just write about it just kind of it's it's the place i know it's the place i that's kind of again when i sit down to write it's where where my mind goes it's just cooked into me i'm trying to remember have you even written anything that wasn't really just at least started out being set in new york no i mean pretty much everything i mean even this book travels out of brooklyn but it's upstate where i lived you know it goes to the town where i lived upstate my the town where my wife's from the bronx town where her family's from or the bronx neighborhood where her family's from um so there's some there's little bits of upstate i've written short stories set in other places but Mm -hmm. all of my all of my novels are yeah our New York, you know, at, uh, more generally New York, but mostly mostly Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah, well, you write on, like, the first page of this book, so strange to be from a block to feel at home on your block, while all the others, even the ones directly surrounding you, feel so foreign. Yeah. I love that idea. Uh, me, as, like, a Southerner who grew up, like, in the country. <laughs> yeah. And by country, I mean, like, no one around. All the people around were, like, my family yeah you know what i mean and there was space and you know trees and all that uh but it still sort of feels the same you know what i mean but it's it's just like a different version of it which i think is is really a cool way of like yeah thinking about it um yeah and so that's how it is in new york it's like just this one little block yeah i mean Uh, you know it's it's probably different experiences for different people i'm sure but my neighborhood you know is kind of a end of the line neighborhood and um, so New York City. And what's I mean, that mean? End of the line. I mean, end of the subway line. End of the like, subway line. So it was okay. far from. Because to know, me, it sounds much more poetic. It's like <laughs> everything in your life has gone wrong, yeah. and you've ended up here. You know, there's a du- there's a double meaning there. Yeah, <laughs> okay. but um, so it was you know 45 minute subway ride into Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan was an, another world to me. You know, growing up, I didn't go there till really, aside from you know a couple of trips to like. Radio City or something mm-hmm. with my family yeah. to see the Christmas tree. You know, I didn't go there ever. Yeah. You know, until I was in high school and started going to the you know record stores and shows and stuff. But did it feel like a different world? At the it time? did feel like a different world. Yeah. I mean, it, did, it totally felt like a different world. I mean, it felt a million miles away, and my neighborhood felt very you know very much like a small town in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a neighborhood when it's insular, as it was when I was growing up, can 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 feel that way. And you know, it's just—I mean, I, that's that's what I what you just read from that book is just totally a feeling I've had. I mean, it just—I even when I'm back there visiting my mom, I kind of marvel at the fact that you know. I, I only know this block. There's all these other blocks around, and I don't know anything about them, and I don't know many people on them. And, you know, it's just uh, something I get hung up on thinking about for sure. I don't think I don't hung That's a good thing to get hung up on. Yeah. <laughs> to me, I think it's interesting uh, how there's just like, to me, like in Mississippi here, there's like a couple of different patches, patches of land, which are probably about the size of a city block um, that have some trees and creeks on them yeah you know for me that's like it's just something like close to my heart i guess yeah. and that and so yeah i don't know do you think that it kind of opens up a vulnerability that allows you to like get to the where you want to go with writing is that does that make sense i think so for yeah. me it does yeah you know? yeah no yeah. i think it does i mean i think it's just about you know to me it's very often just about kind of 
digging into those emotions. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you dedicate this book to, for the libraries and video stores where I spent my childhood. Were those in your neighborhood or were you kind of venturing out? Yeah, they were, they were in my neighborhood and okay. um, there was a video store just a couple of blocks from my house that I used to go to just all the time and a little library a few blocks away. Um, and that was just really, you know, where I got my education really that, or yeah. the education that mattered to me. Yeah. Um, now, did you go to public school there? Or? I went to Catholic school. Catholic school? Yeah. Raised uh, Catholic, went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. 12 years of Catholic school. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, you know, I went to eight years grade school right in my neighborhood, just a few blocks from my house, St. Mary's, which comes up a lot in my books. Yeah. Um, and then I went to a high school, a couple of neighborhoods over, um, called Severian that I call Our Lady of the Narrows in my books. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it, basically I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up around anybody who was really into reading or watching movies or listening to music. Um, was it most, was it like Italian, Irish kind of block or it was, my neighborhood when I was growing up, it was, was all, it all Italian pretty yeah. much. I mean, it was very much an Italian neighborhood. My family's Italian, yeah. um, on my mom's side, my dad was Scottish, yeah. um, but yeah, it was mostly Italian neighborhood, um, and kind of, you know, kind of a decaying Italian neighborhood, like a lot of, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, um, a lot of people were leaving, moving to Long Island, Staten Island, New Jersey. Um, and so it was, it was kind of, you know not a lot going on there and um that's it's changed a lot now actually it's kind of this thriving chinese american neighborhood is totally alive and different from when i was growing up um, full of restaurants and markets and um, there was some of that still kind of there you know pizzerias and good old bakeries and markets when i was a kid you know the but it was beginning to kind of fade out a little bit a lot of those places were closing a lot of those people were going away so yeah what is it was making people leave you think i'm just curious i, I mean i don't know i think there, there was a time where which is hard to imagine now because um it's just difficult to to wrap your head around the fact that people would kind of get rid of New York City real estate, I guess. But there was a time when people just wanted out of the city and they, they wanted they wanted more of the small town, small yeah. s- small city experience. There, so a lot a lot of people just move into Long Island or or I guess more kind of suburban ex- places, yeah. Long Island, New Jersey. Um, you know, it was kind of still that era, especially in the in the nineties of New York City being perceived as dangerous and dirty and yeah. it was pre you know, I'm talking mostly pre like Giuliani years of uh, uh mm-hmm. when they like kinda in the nineties Disney Disneyfied Times yeah. Square and like, you know, things started turning around and changing and become much more of like a rich rich kind of place yeah <laughs> yeah i think i'm familiar with it but yeah <laughs> uh well speaking of catholic school 
Uh, let's see, where is this at? <laughs> oh, I made a note that says nuns on skates, <laughs> which I think is just. That was something I saw. I put that. I was going to ask you about it. Like, where did, so you have this, we're in this like <laughs> scene in this, in this book. Yeah. And all of a sudden this girl who's one of the main characters looks over and there's <laughs> these nuns on roller skates in, a, in like a V like, like swans or something, you know, yeah. on the street. It's kind of surreal. Yeah. Uh, but it's. I love that about books. I love when you, you're kind of settled into this space on a New York street and you got this plot line going on and then someone looks over and it's, it is like a film. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really shows your like film influence coming by where you kind of paint this scene of just like nuns on roller skates going by and it's just there and then it's gone. Yeah. But then you sort of talk about Catholicism a few times, not long after that. So it's, it's kind of like setting this scene for like, like, I guess, like, kind of what people believe, how they think, and also the like, kind of the pageantry, yeah, of of, of the ridiculousness of it or yeah. something. You know, I don't know. Like, what what was your thoughts behind throwing that in there? Uh, well, you know, so that part of the book is is set in the Throg's Neck neighborhood of the Bronx, where my wife's family is from. Her dad owned a bar there for twenty five years, and when we got married, we moved there, and we lived there for a couple of years before moving here. And I used to just um, walk all the time when I was there. I walked a ton. I mean, I walked all the time when I was in Brooklyn too. But it's one of the things I yeah. miss most about being in New York. Um, I would walk all the time there, and and there's a church a few blocks from where we lived, which was her family's, you know, childhood church where her dad had gone and, mm-hmm. where, you know, all her uncles were baptized and there's a convent there and they had nuns. Um, it was kind of a young order of, of nuns. I can't remember what their, what their name is, the order. Um, but you'd see them out and there was this bodega that I'd go to all the time to get coffee or bagels or whatever. And I just looked up one day and they were just all, all these nuns, all the nuns were just on roller skates in the street. And it was just, it was this image that just stayed with me. And it reminded me of the, the, there's a similar kind of scene in Jesus's son, um, mm. somebody, yeah. not a group, but like a woman, um, on a, I can't remember what she's, what she's doing in Jesus's son. I'm thinking of the scene in the movie where he looks out and she's on the, she's on like a, almost like a hang, like floating on a, uh-huh. I can't remember what it is in the, in the book. Um, and it just stayed with me. So I think when I put the, I put the character, you know, it's one of the things I love about writing is just like, you know, you, you can have a character wandering the streets Mm -hmm. and you know i put her in this bodega that i used to go to all the time and so then i just threw that that yeah moment in there um just struck me as a good time for it i guess and yeah i mean i think as for the catholic stuff i think everything i write is so catholic haunted that you know it's just always kind of popping up and and you know and in the imagery for sure and also in the just kind of interiority of the the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like the characters have this sort of, um, I don't know, very kind of Catholic morality that's always yeah. sitting there. Um, 
I mean, I guess that makes a lot of sense how you came up. Uh, but to me, it's so interesting because I, I'm not as familiar, being a Southerner, I'm as familiar with yeah, Catholicism. Yeah. I'm a little bit obsessed with religion in general. Yeah. So I probably know more than your average Southerner <laughs> does about Catholicism. Uh, yeah. And and then I, since marrying Sarah, too, she went to Catholic school for right. at least part of her education. Um, and her mom did too, like in Malaysia, they went oh. to Catholic school. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm just like kind of fascinated. And I talked to Tyler about this. We were talking about his characters and his songs where he grew up Calvinist. Yeah. And then he was, he kind of was telling me, you know, Calvinists believe in predestination. So it's basically yeah. like this set Some amount Paul of Schrader, uh, people are gonna go to, you know, go to heaven or whatever. Yeah. And as we were talking about it and as I was listening to his music, I just started noticing how like every it, people are, some people are doomed. Yeah. Most people are doomed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah uh, and yeah. I get that a lot in your work too. Um, is that a, but Catholics, I, I, you're not really doomed, right? You, you got purgatory and you got all these. No, I'm, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a believer. I'm not a yeah. practicing Catholic anymore, but I'm very much like, you know, it's, it's just in me and, and rooted. So I don't know if like, I think for me, it's more about very often. I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticizing belief because I, I write characters who I think are very often are are you know I'm, I'm most interested in the characters who are believers yeah um, but I, I i'm often they, they often do the weird shit right? yeah <laughs> and i'm often kind of portraying the struggle yeah. between like you know i think it mostly manifests itself in my books as like a mother who is a devout catholic mm-hmm. and a, a son or a daughter who is you know, full of doubt and, mm-hmm. and is moving away from it. And so that's, that's something that, uh, I mean, the doom stuff, I think, you know, that, that comes in in other ways, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's this kind of, especially in my earlier stuff, there's a, you know, uh, almost, a uh, nihilistic kind of element or, you know, that, kind of we're we're all fucked yeah quality that i think i've drifted away from a little bit and more towards you know i don't know someplace not not so not (laughs) quite so dark but do you tend to gravitate toward art that leans in that i mean yeah you know i I do i I like darker stuff i like depressing stuff (laughs) you know i always have responded to Uh, to that if you don't mind me asking why do you think that is or have you thought about it like why do you think that i mean you know i think i think um it's it's a way of making sense of the world you know Mm -hmm. i mean it's always been what i've gone to art for it's not it's not therapy but it's it's uh i don't see art as therapy but it, it certainly can be therapeutic and i think yeah. i i engage with it in a way that you know i'm trying to make meaning out mm-hmm. of everything and um i i you know i i often find that in darker darker stuff you know or, or stories art that explores kind of the the darker edges of of the human experience, I guess, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say I don't like happy stuff. I mean, I very, I, you know, I do. And, and I think, you know, friend is a gift you give yourself was, uh, uh, was for me, uh, a way of moving away from some of the, the darker stuff yeah. towards, 
you know something that edged into the comic and and the hopeful um, right so um but yeah i mean i don't know it's just always uh, it's always maybe some of it's got to do with just kind of the the era i grew up in you know mm-hmm. i mean the stuff that was kind of in the 90s the stuff that was mainstream was you know that's I mean, true it was like you know yeah. when, when when you have your brain switched by nirvana and and pulp fiction like yeah you know that's kind of setting you on a path <laughs> the 90s i think really uh, i mean i'm seeing this more now i guess the further we get away from it and the older that i get and then like just having that retrospective of like growing up in the 90s and yeah. kind of viewing all the things you listened to and watched and read in that time. And then you get like a 20 year span where you can kind of look at what you did with your life and what you've created and like what you listen to now. You definitely start to see like the nineties kind of did a number. Well, I think the eighties did a number on some people and then they did a number on us. And then I get, you know, I start to think like, man, what was it about that time that just was like, and I recently watched those. I, I don't know if you've seen this. Have you watched the Woodstock '99 documentaries? I haven't. No, I I, I keep meaning to. You should because yeah. it, I've watched them from this perspective of like, what made it, yeah, s- that do that. You know, yeah, like yeah. what is and then but then I watched it and I was like, I know that energy so well. Like yeah. I can remember just. Men, like young white dudes and yeah, well, I guess white people and it was kind of white people in general, yeah. but like, well, in that late, really the late nineties was different than the early nineties. That's yeah, true. It was like that. But that I wonder if that decade kind of, it seems like, cause I do think in about that decade a lot and I returned to a lot of that music and, yeah. and I watched that and I was like, it was 99. It was right before 2000 when, you know, yeah, you had the millennium was kind of it was a big deal. It seemed like it kind of the nineties kind of led up and then like climax into this like weird yeah thing that happened at the beginning of the year. Um, I don't know. Does that make any sense? No, it does. I mean, it's <laughs> it's fascinating to yeah. think about and kind of to diagnose. I'm reading this um, Stephen Hyden's new book on Pearl Jam now, so I'm yeah. thinking very much about that. And those are kind of the, a lot of the stuff he's he's tangling with in there. And uh, Chuck Klosterman had that book come out this year about the '90s too, where he's kind of digs into a lot of those those questions. Um, it's definitely something I'm interested in. But I mean, for me, like you know, the that those early the early '90s of just kind of those super formative years for me of finding stuff and you know being led by it and there is there's a shift at some point you know in the 90s that i kind of wasn't i mean i I went to college in 96 so once Mm -hmm. i got to college i was much less kind of i don't know that's when i really started digging into older stuff i think and kind of was much less aware of yeah what where the kind of mainstream stuff was bending so I right. you know, like the Woodstock 99 thing wasn't really even on my radar too much when it happened because I didn't me neither like, I don't about, even really yeah. remember it so I think that's why I think it's interesting to like watch it now because yeah it looks really familiar to me yeah yeah and I'm like oh that totally happened but it seemed how did like, they not know that was gonna happen yeah it was well and Stephen <laughs> Hyden talks about this in in this Pearl Jam book a little bit like how Pearl Jam kind of you know influenced this this wave and you know he loves Pearl Jam and I like Pearl Jam yeah. quite a lot too but they 
there was this wave of uh, these kind of new metal or whatever, like uh-huh. Creed and yeah. whatever there, that that kind of distorted a lot of that into this weird energy. Um, that I think a lot of it culminated as as far as I can tell in that Woodstock '99 <laughs> yeah. scene or whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's definitely a fascinating decade to look at as the kind of end of something, you know, that you know, just the fact that it's the end of the millennium, definitely, but also the fact that it's, you know, this, the, the last days of kind of pre internet uh-huh. culture. I mean, it was already around, but it wasn't the way it became, right. you know, in the, yeah. in the aughts. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely interesting to think about that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if any of this will make it in there. I was more just like interested to hear your, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw you were reading that Pearl Jam book. Yeah. I was never really a Pearl Jam fan. Um, I mean, I, I didn't hate them or anything. I yeah. just, this was like, it was never like the band that I loved or anything like yeah. that. I think I was a little young for that. I'm a couple of years younger. Than yeah. Me. Yeah. So by the late nineties, they were kind of like, yeah, it was more like straight Nirvana for me. Yeah, I um, love Nirvana, and yeah. you know, it's it's and interesting. And I graduated more like punk than I did, yeah, like the kind of grunge rock thing. So yeah, no, it um, was it was it was big for me, and you know, I think that's been kind of interesting to think about as I read this book because, um, you know, Nevermind was the the big thing mm-hmm. for me when I, whenever I heard it, seventh grade. Because before that, I oh, liked yeah. like hair metal, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then. Um, 10 was, I don't, I, they were re- released right around the same time, I think, but 10 was also an album I loved. And yeah, you know, I, I was fine. Again, it wasn't like, even though I was in New York city, I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't until I got to high school that I started meeting people that were turning me on to cool shit I wouldn't have known about otherwise. So I was listening to what was on the radio, you know, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. thankfully, you know, it was a time when you could hear Nirvana and Pearl Jam and yeah. whoever else on the radio. Um, so I liked them, uh, you know, I liked them quite a lot for those, those first few years. And then there's a point like in the 97 or 98 where it's just like became passe to like them or embarrassing to like them. Like when I was in college, yeah. like nobody wanted to like Pearl Jam anymore. He didn't admit it if you liked him. And, and yeah, yeah. so it's interesting to kind of unpack that and think about, it. and I just really did stop listening to them and stop. Yeah, thinking about them for well, it seems a while. like they they kind of kind of I don't know. I guess they didn't fall off, but they were definitely they weren't approaching it in the same way. No, it's totally right? yeah, and that's yeah. that's kind of the book. I mean, the book is not a biography. The book is like about their career arc, which is fascinating. Like yeah. that they've endured and that they've you know gone on anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's interesting to. I mean, it's always interesting to think about kind of. Uh, to me, it's like you know what what you what you really love, what you, and, you know, and what you love in your formative years, and then what you reject because people want you to reject it, or you think it's not cool, or you think it's whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I find myself thinking about that stuff a lot. Yeah, for me, it was like when I was young. I mean, honestly, most people liked country music, and yeah, like whatever yeah. was on pop country radio. And like yeah. as a teenager, I was just like hated country music. Yeah, I couldn't stand <laughs> it. You know, I just thought it was like because every like kind of asked redneck asshole I knew yeah. was like singing those songs, and I just like couldn't relate to that. Yeah. You know, but in my I guess like early twenties, 
Like I really started to love Johnny Cash when Johnny yeah, Cash's yeah. American Four came out, yeah. and I was just like, this album is incredible. Yeah, and that really kind of led me to being like, okay, I want to know all Johnny Cash songs. Yeah. I want to know all of his albums. So yeah. I really started an education on like yeah. country music. You know, I had a I realized pretty quickly I had a lot in my bones and blood yeah, just yeah. from being raised around it. You know, yeah. but I really just never kind of gave it a chance yeah. until then. Now, fast forward 20 years later, I'm just like, I basically mostly just like listen to country music yeah. a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and feel kind of bad about like ragging on it so much. You know, there's some stuff I would still rag on, but you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, but, I love, you know, it was kind of the same for like, I mean, except it wasn't on my radar at all. You know, yeah. I mean, it was a kid listening to, you know, Z100 in New York. I was hearing, you know, whatever was just kind of the hits at the time and again thankfully it was like some some of it was good stuff um, now in new york you probably would have had were you starting to go to shows and stuff when you were a i teenager? started going in high school yeah okay. um so what's some good bands that you saw in new york around that time oh man I, you know i probably I, probably nobody you know I'd, I'd see a lot of times in high school like i was going to see my friends bands mm -hmm. um my friend, this kid I was friends with in high school named Chip, who played in a band called Felonious Punk. Um, <laughs> I used awesome. to go see him all the, their band all the time. Yeah, uh, but you know it was like like those guys who were instrumental in turning me on to you know Sonic Youth and mm -hmm. other stuff that I hadn't heard. My friend Anthony, who um, you know gave me the Velvet Underground yeah. tape, and you know so. Um, I don't know. Really, it wasn't probably more till like the shows I'd go to in the city. I was really into Tori Amos when I was in high yeah, school. Yeah, I used to go. Tori Amos is awesome. I love Tori Amos. I still yeah. love Tori Amos. Although she like Pearl Jam, like I drifted away from her at a certain point and yeah. kind of stopped paying attention to the new stuff. But those first four records or so, I yeah. love. And um, so I think some of the first big shows I went to in the city were Tori Amos shows. I went to two or three of those. I, I used to love the band Cracker. I, I yeah. came to see Cracker a couple of times. That's cool. Um, yeah, so at what like point? That. So when did you? We're both big fans of Jason Molina. Yeah. At what point did you discover his music? I was also in Austin. So okay. Austin. I mean, I was there for a year, but it was this super. It was just this a great time of discovery for me. It was the first time I heard Towns Van Zandt. It was just like you know getting yeah. back to discovering like you know country stuff that I loved. I mean, for me, it was through. Once I got into really into Dylan and Tom Waits and Springsteen and. Nick Cave and like mm -hmm. all that stuff, I kind of started tracing things back and that opened yeah. up, you know, a whole new world to me. And so I, I was in Austin and there was a record store there called, it's not there anymore, called 33 Degrees, something like that, mm. um, that I used to go to all the time. And um, one day I was in there and I just, again, it was like that time where you just go into a record store and there there was maybe a listening station i think yeah um and i would just kind of check stuff out and see what i what i wanted to get and didn't it rain had come out and i thought it looked cool and i yeah. you know at that point i'd gotten into some other stuff um you know kind of similar 
Like I'd listened to Bill, Bill Callahan and I'd listened to Will Oldham. Yeah. Like, you know, so I knew and liked that stuff. And I thought this kind of looked like it was in the same vein yeah. and um, took that home and just kind of fell in love with it. And then I was, I, you know, went back and got a couple other songs Ohio things and um and then you know 2000 that was 2002 i guess Mm -hmm. um and then the next year when we moved back to new york the songs ohio magnolia electric company record came out and at that point i was just like number one number one fan you know (laughs) you know yes same here i had heard some songs off didn't it rain i didn't like have the record um but at that time, I was living in a house trailer down here in Mississippi with very slow dial-up <laughs> internet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I used to just like read music blogs and stuff, you know. And so, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd heard about Didn't It Rain because it was like making the rounds on yeah. those, and you, you could download. They usually would have an MP3 or two you right. could download. Most of my music that I got, I would just have like those whatever two songs they kind of yeah. gave away, and I would make mix CDs off of that. Yeah. Uh, but then I remember. Yeah, when Songs of High My New Electric Company came out, it was like Farewell Transmission was like the first song yeah. they put out. And I downloaded that and put it on. And I was like, uh, this is the best thing I've ever heard yeah. in my life. I mean, honestly, I was just like, and it, I think it goes along with that point in my life where I was transitioning from that punk to, you know, it was kind of like an indie rock emo thing I was doing. Yeah, yeah. And then first in my early 20s, starting to be like, okay, is country music cool? Yeah. You know, and they, yeah. he really kind of just having that lap steel come in like that, yeah. I think helped me be like, okay, it's okay yeah, to, to sound like these things and like do it, someone do it well, yeah, you know, and then just his songwriting, I mean, his words, oh, yeah, I was like, that. I've never heard anyone just, do, just say things like this. I don't know. It was a different type of, yeah. cause I, I guess I was at the point where I was really studying songwriters and and country music songwriters is it's is a really old tale right you know yeah. and it's rich in storytelling but it's gone through its phases and so he struck out to me as being like okay he broke the formula yeah uh but it's still in the formula but he yeah, broke yeah. the formula like what's going on here so. yeah yeah you know i mean I, I i definitely am always kind of a i think i always respond to songwriters you know i mean that to, to lyrics kind of first i'm not a musician i mean yeah. i love you know i love a certain sound i think or mm-hmm. different kinds of sounds but for me it's like you know those those people i mentioned before dylan and, yeah. and springsteen and cave and you know merle haggard and and you know on and on towns van zandt like i'm you know nico case like i'm always responding to words first i think um and i think for me with molina you are a writer yeah yeah (laughs) i think for for me with molina it was that but also i mean his voice is i mean the 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 sounds uh, you know just he felt like i mean that record in particular at that point you know i was i guess i was 24 25 when it came out and it you know it just felt like a culmination of all my interests in one Mm -hmm. place like you know here's somebody who who took Neil Young and took Willie Nelson and took like, you know, all this stuff and just kind of, and just put it into something that was his own. And, um, yeah. so, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the sound of that record, I, I just sounded like nothing I'd ever heard and mm-hmm. sounded, you know, the, I mean, the, the, 
the spirit of it, the the lyrics were weird enough that that drew me in. They weren't like, you know, plain, boring lyrics. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just fell for it hard, you know, I fell for him hard. Yeah. To me, I've always found it fascinating because this is something I learned later was that it was basically, you know, engineered and recorded and produced by like the same guy. Yeah. Who did the Nirvana records? Oh yeah, yeah. That we Steve love. Me, yeah. So there's something I think in the sound. Yeah, no, I that think really resonated too. Yeah, Steve I, Albini. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think about that because I I also think of when I think about I've been thinking about Nina Nastasia a lot this year because I don't mm-hmm. know if you listen to her but she's got this new not really record yeah. out and it's my favorite record of this year Riderless Horse and she hadn't made a record in ten years or twelve years. Um, but she was also like, she put out a string of records in the 2000s that were, you know, engineered by Steve Albini. And there's something, yeah, there's something there. I mean, he just, uh, he captures sound. And that, that Bazan solo, that Bazan live record that he produced. I love. Oh, yeah, Live Electrical. It's like my oh, yeah. favorite yeah. Bazan thing. It's, it sounds incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, so I mean, there's something, there's something, something there for sure that I was responding to. And, um, but yeah, Melina, I mean, just, I, I was also just kind of in discover, really deep in discovery mode with music at that point, just, you know, finding stuff and listening to anything I could find that, you know, was kind of, I thought might be up my alley and reading a lot of different music writers and, you know, and, um, just, just, it was just an exciting time. Just, uh what was being real. I mean, that year alone, 2003 was like, I mean, I was, I often think of that as it was a great year for maybe music. my favorite yeah, music year. That's true. Between the Molina record and the Wrens and yes, so much good stuff came out that year. Yeah. Then Nico case record. She had a good record coming out around that time too. Right? Uh, when yeah. Fox confessor maybe came out in 2004. Fox confessor was uh, maybe yeah, 2005. soon after that. I don't think yeah. it was 2003, but um, she might have released something. And, well, yeah. She had the record that came before that that was yeah. very good. Blacklist, too. Yeah, and Fox Fo- Confessor was the one that kind of Fox Confessor's up. my favorite, yeah. yeah. The Middle Cyclone I love, too. Yeah. It was a little later. And the Fox Confessor might have been 04. I can't remember. Yeah. It was... I haven't thought of that. That's really interesting because that really is about the time that I was like, okay, I'm just going to start writing songs yeah. under my own name. So you're right. It was a good year for music because I yeah. think that it kind of influenced me of being like, okay, I can do this. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was a, it was a key year. I mean, just even when I think about my favorite records of the last 25 years, and so many of them are just tw- yeah. o- 03 or or you know 97 to 03, or, but a lot a lot of good stuff came out that year. Now, how does um how does music factor into writing for you? Do um. Like, for example, I guess I'm going to sort of get into your process here. So yeah. When you're writing, do you listen to music or are you completely, you know? Yeah, I listen to music. I have to listen to music when I'm while writing. you're writing. I, yeah. I listen mostly when I'm writing. I listen to instrumental yeah. stuff. Um, lyrics just take me. Yeah. They just take my head out. Right. Of what I'm doing. That's why bit. I can't yeah. listen to anything while I'm writing. Yeah. But I, so I'll listen to a lot of like. Like, like the the Nick Cave, Warren Ellis soundtracks, mm-hmm. the John Carpenter stuff, a lot of kind of, um, 
John Fahey, William Tyler, stuff like that. Yeah. Instrumental guitar music, uh, some classical, some modern classical. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dirty Three, you know, I love coming back to Warren Ellis. I love those Dirty Three records. Um, So that's always something that I'm kind of returning to. I just have a whole playlist that's just like, you know my work playlist yeah, it's yeah. like scores soundtracks oh yeah uh, i mean scores more than soundtracks but, uh so yeah just just all over the place and then you know as far as other stuff i mean i think you know the sound sound of records often i feel like inspires something that i want to do like you know i always think of jim carroll's catholic boy and lou reed's new york mm-hmm. as like that's what I want my books to be like those two records, you know, I mean the sound that those records have is the sound I want my books to have. I think it comes through. It really does. I think that's really interesting. I've heard you talk about Lou Reed before. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good, uh, it's a really good way to describe the way you write. I, in your books, yeah, or I mean, in a lot the of tone ways, or something. Yeah, yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways, no bigger influence on me. And, you yeah, know, just in terms of, again, because I wasn't, I wasn't reading a lot of stuff that I thought captured the feel of the city that I knew. And you know, for me, it was mostly in, in music and in films that I was seeing that um, or hearing that. And uh, you know, and Lou Reed and Jim Carroll and Sonic Youth, you know, too, and and you know, other some other folks. Those were kind of the. The, the big ones for me. Yeah. Uh, another thing I love about your books is that, and I, maybe this ties into the type of music you listen to when you write, but it always has a great rhythm to it. Oh, thanks. And for me, like, depending on the book, you know, like I recently read Angela's Ashes. I don't know if you've yeah, ever read yeah. that. It's been a long time. But you know, yeah, but it's yeah. very Irish. Yeah. And so you have to, it takes me a minute, Yeah, maybe even a chapter or two to like really get into that rhythm yeah. of the way he speaks and writes. You yeah. Know? And I'm like that with pretty much all authors, but I love I love to like get into that yeah, rhythm. Yeah. And uh, yours uh, did it within like two pages. Oh, thanks. Really, you know, uh, and maybe it's because I don't know. We're a little more used to New York accents, I guess, from yeah. TV and stuff like that. You know, yeah. just like watching Yankees games on TV or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but is that a thing as as like a novelist and short story fiction writer? Uh, like tempo and pacing and things like that. Is that something you think about? Oh yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, yeah. especially as, you know, since I, since I write crime novels, you know, or novels that kind of edge up against crime noir. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm always thinking about pacing and, and tension and, you know, and having to, you know, having to have that, that kind of thing that's pulling, pulling you. Um, but also, yeah, the rhythms of, of speech and the world that's all mm-hmm. really important to me and to do it in a way that's not you know too full of boring exposition that just kind of thrusts you into a moment a scene that, that yeah. you know you're invested in that's all that's all really at the front of my mind all the time i think yeah i think for me like a lot of southern writers and when i've tried to write some some sort of um, fiction or even nonfiction, but just yeah. some prose. Every time I write prose, I t- tend to find that <laughs> I'm not saying a lot and I'm spending a lot of time describing trees and yeah. shit. You know <laughs> what I mean? It, but it is because I think the pace is so slow. Yeah. And, and I'm so like honed into the pace of like southernness that like 
I don't know. It's just hard for me to do. I can do it with music. Yeah. But prose, I hadn't figured out. But Larry Brown, I think, is a really great yeah. example of how you can have this ruralness, but has a pace to it that is real, but also it doesn't like lose you as yeah, a reader. I, I, well, and that's, and that's, I think that's the way the Larry Brown kind of influenced me too. That, you know, when you're writing about the same world and I'm often, you know, writing about my neighborhood or, you know, this, this area of New York that I've spent most of my life in, like, I'm just, I, you know, I'm not getting hung up on having to build the world of the story. The, the mm. world is already there. So when I sit down to begin it, I'm just right in it. I'm right into the that rhythm, and I'm not getting lost in trying to build yeah. know, everything because it's already been in my mind anyway. It's already been built. It's already there. Because um, I think a lot of people will get hung up on, especially when they're just beginning work on a, a first novel or something, they'll get hung up on writing all this stuff that's probably necessary for them to write, but then ultimately is very cuttable for the book. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. cause they're trying to create the full picture of the right. world in their, in their minds. Well, there you have it friends. My talk with my good friend, Bill Boyle. Thanks for listening. Until next time.